Welcome to the podcast that demands ambition, passion, and courage in order to succeed in this mission called life. All you have to do is just pass your limit. Go beyond your restraints by embracing the physical, intellectual, and emotional suck that life will throw at you. I'm your host, Ugo. I do not claim to be the subject matter expert, but I will share my experiences and I'll ask my guests to do the same. The discussions will be guided by honesty and civility. Some episodes will have guests, but most of them will be me and you. No excuses accepted here, people. None. I'm excited to get after it. So without further ado, let's go. My guest today served in the military for 21 years as a hospital corpsman. He is qualified Fleet Marine Force and he retired as a chief petty officer. He is a jiu-jitsu coach, specifically a brown belt. It is my pleasure to welcome Mike Bidenauer to the Pass Your Limit Podcast. Brother, how are you doing? Great. It's a pleasure to be here, Hugo. Thank you so much for coming on. And I've been trying to get you on for a while now. And then finally, we could do this. So without further ado, let's just hop into who Mike is, your story, and just give me your background, what took you to the Navy, and how you put in those 21 years. Well, uh, I grew up in South Bend, Indiana, which is pretty close to Chicago, so oftentimes I just tell people I'm from Chicago, because unless they're familiar with the University of Notre Dame, they don't really know where South Bend is, which at this time, that's the only thing really left in that town, is the university. And uh, I went to, I was pretty convinced I wanted to go to university when I graduated high school, Mm. although I was not a really great student when I was in high school. But I managed to get into uh, Ball State University, and I think the main reason I wanted to go to university was to drink beer. Right. <laughs> and I ended up playing wait, rugby. Wait, wait. Did, did I miss it? Like, where, where are you from originally? Indiana. Indiana. South, South okay, so that's Indiana. why you're around. Okay, Midwest. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Midwest. Um, and, and that's how we kind of, one of the connections we have is that when you came to the United States, you right. were in Bowling Green, yep. and I played rugby. Mm-hmm. Against Bowling Green University, the club there, and you lost. Was, the, and you lost to BG, didn't you? Yeah, they were really good. <laughs> they were really good. I mean, they were. Uh, they managed to mount a club that actually came to Europe and mm-hmm. uh, in the summers and probably got their butts whipped pretty soundly. But okay. when they came back to the states, they understood the game, which a lot of Americans don't really understand that it's 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 a strategic game it's not about hitting hard it's about gaining and holding territory until you get into scoring position gotcha gotcha you know um so i I did that for like two years but what i was doing at ball state university was i was drinking beer i was trying to drink the town dry and i was playing rugby and i said well i don't have a lot more money to continue to do this so i decided to join the navy reserves to get some money Ah, gotcha. And I ended up doing really well when I joined the Navy. I was my company honorman. Um, you know, you so get in Great Lakes? At Great Lakes, yes. Uh-huh. Great Lakes in the wintertime. Wow, that's yeah. cold. Yeah, so, um, and that was before all the global warming stuff. This was about 1988. Gotcha. So it was 1988, uh, winter of 1988. So you did reserves then you switched to active or you stayed reserved the whole time i did so well i went home and i'm like shit i'm gonna go back in the navy this worked out really right. well for me <laughs> you know i like it um you know and and look at that time of my life i 
didn't really have a firm grasp or comprehension on like discipline. I kind of understood a little bit about hard work because I saw how my father had worked, who was Mm -hmm. a blue collar guy. And, you know, uh, I remember watching him during the uh, Reagan years, the economic downturn, where he was not able to work in his true trade. So he went and he worked at two welding jobs, basically Mm -hmm. um, 20 hours a day just to support his family. So, So maybe I hadn't adapted those principles well, you had the, it in you i understood what it meant and yeah. i understood and and from being from the midwest i also understood that what men do is they go to work yeah, and they do their job uh-huh. and they support their family and when it sucks they don't say anything yeah they keep their goddamn mouth no, short shut, shut yeah shut that's yeah. the way it works and that's kind of now hey, let me ask you a follow-up question real quick sorry to cut you off um do you think that kind of trickles down to kids? It's important for kids to see their parents overcome adversity. Because if you don't have that kilter to show you that left and right lateral limit, you really don't know what hard work really is. You can't manufacture things like that. I think that in any principle, the best way, and we're talking about hard work in this case, right. the best way to teach people about that principle is to keep your mouth shut and to show them. And, you know, if, if you get out there, I, I don't trust the people who predicate, do this this way, do this that way. Right. I don't generally trust them because when you scrape away the surface, oftentimes oh, you find that it's really just a facade. Right. And I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just telling you that's my experience. I, I agree with that because that's why I say um, if you have to tell somebody how good you are, you're not that good. So you have to, like, perform you know, and those people that come out like, oh, I'm so good at this, I'm good at that, and they haven't done anything. They haven't shown you anything. No. You know, yeah, and I it really goes, comes down kind of like to along the lines of what you're saying. But back to your story, though, a couple of things. If, uh, I wanted to touch on your family before you keep going. You talked about your dad. So do you have, do you have the structure? Do you have siblings? How does that work? Yeah. Uh, so my father was a sheet metal worker. My mother was a nurse, and I have an older brother. Um, and a, a younger brother okay, three. And, and a little sister. She's the youngest. So there's four of us. Ah, gotcha. Which I think that was kind of, uh, I like demographics in some cases, but I think that time period, you know, late 60s, early 70s, that uh-huh. was probably a normal family size. Yeah. And from a Midwest, my mom was extremely, she's of Polish descent. She's extremely, she was extremely Catholic. My dad just kind she of. She first generation or? Uh, uh, yeah, she's first generation American. Oh wow! Yeah, and my dad is, I think, maybe second generation. So, not too no, far removed. No, no, and it's a, it's a fascinating conundrum that whole immigrant thing in America. Right, that that just threw me off right now. Like, is looking at you. I'm looking at an older white male, you know, and I'm like, oh yeah, you've been here. You have the lineage back to 1775, but then you start talking about your story. It's like you're like three decades removed or three family roles removed on my mother's side i'm second generation second American. generation right yeah my my grandmother her her mother and my grandfather were both immigrants to the united states of america and mm-hmm. they went to the midwest close to chicago because a lot of times that's where people i mean look white americans generally immigrate from the midwest to the coasts 
Mm-hmm. I think there's some validity in saying you immigrated to the Midwest when you came from Ni- Nigeria, right? Right. Because there's opportunity there because people are running away from it. Mm. I don't know if that's valid or not, but you have to think if people leave the region I, I come from, uh, you know, from from western Pennsylvania to Chicago, the, the Rust Belt, uh. that used to be in the 70s a huge industrialized area. It's just not so anymore. Gotcha. So people have had to get away. Uh, you know, so who comes there? Immigrants from other places to study maybe South Americans, you know, people from Africa, right. Europeans. Right. And there's universities there. You went to Bowling Green. Right. It's a good university. They Go have Falcons. a lot of good, lot of good programs there. So you're looking, you're coming to the states. You're hungry. You're gonna go where you get opportunity, and you don't give a shit if it's warm, cold. You don't, you don't care. You just, uh, not at all. you wanted an opportunity to, to excel, or to fail because those are the two possibilities. That's what you, that's what can happen when you put yourself out there. Right. There's no more variability. It's either you win or you lose, and if you lose, hopefully. You get back up and get back in the fight because eventually you're going to lose at something. Mm. You don't win all the time. And and thank God you don't win all the time because when you lose, you learn. You get humble. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Or stay humble, you know. Well, most people that succeed a lot are not very humble people. I've seen most of them. And I've seen like they haven't seen failure and they were born with a silver spoon in their mouth that I've met, you know, that very privileged. And I'm not talking about race. I'm talking about those that that I've come across like, wow, don't you have some kind of humility, you know? And, and then you see, then they face that, face that adversity. Adversity builds a lot of character, in my opinion. Well, what is your opinion on that? I think the people you're talking about mm-hmm. are successful. Mm. I think they're privileged, okay? I like that. I think they're privileged because if you've never had to work for anything, how can you call that success? No, I don't think I agree with you. Like, well, 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 well. So even if you're privileged, it takes a certain level of attention to detail and discipline to maintain that wealth. Because even though it was passed down to you, the hard workers will maintain it and make it better. Take that benchmark and take it better and make it better. Those that are lazy and privileged, they can lose that wealth. <laughs> that's, that's how I, I, I can't, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to get into the debate of, Right, wrong. Right, right. But yeah, I think that once again, you outlined the two possibilities mm-hmm. privileged and you squander that opportunity. Uh, you know, uh, I don't think my story is the same as, as theirs, you know, in terms of mm-hmm. where I came from, what I did in terms of how I've educated myself. Right. How, how I did that based on my own money. Right. And, and keep going. I'm sorry. This is how we talk all the time. We always <laughs> so address I, I, I agree. I understand your point, but I don't think it's the same. Like if I came from a, a very high level family mm-hmm. and I had the opportunity to go to a different university and I had everything kind of paved for me and I took advantage of that. Right. I, I don't want to say that it's worth less, but it's not the same as a guy who... You know, I got my bachelor's degree when I was in the Navy on active duty, mm-hmm. working and standing duty and deploying. I got a master's degree when I was in the Navy doing all the same things. It's a lot of discipline. And then I got a second master's degree doing all the same things. So, yeah, there's, you know, depending on the individual, like you're referring to, there is some people who take that advantageous position mm-hmm. 
to not use the word privileged position, but it's it's you're, there. There's an advantage there, and they, at a minimum, maintain. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. But well, don't you think that people tend to begrudge privilege, and and I don't think privilege is necessarily a bad thing because it's become kind of synonymous with uh, spoiled or uh, lack desire. Privilege is not a, it's not a bad thing. It's okay to have privilege. I think people tend to begrudge privilege when it's convenient to their cause or their argument in the twenty first century. Okay, take a beautiful woman. Mm-hmm. She's privileged. Oh, yeah. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. I tell my wife this all the time. That she's yeah, a beautiful, beautiful woman. And she's I mean, privileged. <laughs> I try to treat every human being the way I would want to be treated. Mm. But I would be lying to you if I didn't tell you or at least admit that to some degree, I treat a beautiful woman just a little bit different. You know, I'm, so maybe what, I'm not even but, doing that but, consciously. But, 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 but what takes you... But discipline is what helps you regulate that response, right? Are you, are you saying it can't be regulated? No, it absolutely can be regulated. What I'm saying is there's certain ways that we're wired Here, as human okay. beings gotcha. that even, you know, I think I regulate it fairly well. There's been times when people tell me that I don't, and I say, okay, great, tell me. Right, but, but you say something, though, that you use the word, a beautiful woman, right? But that's subjective. In my opinion. It is subjective because a beautiful woman can be somebody that when you talk to her, the way she sounds or the things she says, it may not be physical attractiveness. But even in the context of physical. Yeah, well, beautiful is definitely a reference to physical, but a smart woman is also very beautiful to me. Even if she's not the most physically attractive. You understand what I'm saying? Right, I, I understand. I, I understand. It's just, I, my point is just like, so I like how you used it. And that's a perfect example. And people always use words. And like you always say, words have meaning. Sure they do. But it's always good to make sure two people communicating are using the same standpoint, in my opinion now. It's like, so when two people use a word to say, oh, beautiful, beautiful. Are we considering the same thing, beautiful? And, And even in politics, people use certain words or morality. You know, it's like, okay, what are your morals compared to mine? Or do we have a standard for beauty do we have a standard for morality you know certain things like and i want people to be in the same ballpark and communicate on the same terms so then from that point we could then push forward if that makes sense it does make sense but i think you're introducing the concepts of context context is there context matters it does matter but you know you're you're talking you're you're introducing the concepts of context right you're introducing the concept of perspective Mm-hmm. You know, perspective, my perspective is based on, you know, uh, a half a century of life and mm. experiences. Yours is based on, I'm going to guess, about 35 years. 38 this year. 30, so pretty close. Right. 38 years of life and experience. Right. So our context and our perspective, by its very nature, is varied. Mm-hmm. Uh, yours is not right, nor is it wrong, nor is mine right or wrong. So the the essence of, and what I love about what you are trying to do is you're trying to say, let's communicate, let's not tell each other we're right or wrong, and let's try to understand where each of us is coming from as a human being based on our experiences, and share that with each other. And let's be a little Mm thick-skinned, and let's take the time to listen. Right. 
Right. Because we don't do that very often anymore as a society. And I, I don't want to say just in America because I've been living in Europe for quite a few years. I would submit to you that it's Western society that's gone awry. Mm. It's the Western world to a degree. Gotcha. Good stuff. Uh, let, let, me, let, let me bring the conversation back to your story too. So where did we leave off? Uh, my family, I think. And, and right, so you talked about the, the hard work. Mm-hmm. and so, And there. we were talking about you know, how you teach children to do things. And I, I think you teach anybody how to do things by showing them. That's a principle that I apply in my jiu-jitsu classes. I mean, I, I can't be the coach that just says, do this. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I will tell you, I, I struggle some days when I'm getting ready to be 52 and I have 21-year-old studs coming in there and even though I don't know anything about the martial art, they're physically they're, they're frigging intimidating and I have to be very aware of what I'm doing and the way I'm moving my body, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. You know, and... And, you know, one of the things that drives me to that is that I am scared. And I have to overcome that. I have to. I know I can do it. Right. But if I don't face it on a daily basis, I don't get better. You know? Nor do I help them get better. Because at some point, it's not about me. It's about them. Mm. It's about making them think, man, I... I'm in this class and I'm getting my ass beat because that's the progression of jujitsu. Right. Everybody gets their ass beat in the beginning. And then all of a sudden seeing their face and they're like, I managed to do this and I got this kind of submission and to see the way that the, the, you know, the human desire to overcome things, how they light up, you know? Yeah. That's awesome. Awesome content right there. So then we go into the Navy side. So you started Navy and you, you were, you were enjoying the Navy thing. Yep. Uh, when, Navy. when did uh, jiu-jitsu start? Was it in the Navy when it started? No, I went through my whole Navy career. I've been through several, you know, duty stations. I went to the first Gulf War. How many deployments? Oh, I don't even remember, man. I mean, that's, I, you know, one of the things that I swore to myself, well, I remember passing through Norfolk, Virginia on several occasions. Uh-huh. On one occasion, I was in the transient personnel unit. And I would go over to the galley to eat. And I would, I, and, and there's still guys like, you know, we're in Rota, Spain. There's still guys like this around here. And I would see these retirees, mostly a lot of chiefs or senior chiefs or master chiefs, and they'd be in the galley eating. And they had become so institutionalized by the structure of the Navy mm-hmm. that they didn't know where to go anymore. They didn't know how to turn the page. It's a different culture, though. Like, you get used to it, right? We all, and you've told me about this. It's very, we have to be mindful of it. Well, right. But what what I did is I said, I don't want to be that. Mm -hmm. So I thank those guys. I don't, I feel, I I feel like I would love to be able to do something for them, Mm -hmm. but I can't because nobody can do anything for anybody. You have to do everything on your own. It's all on you, it's your responsibility to change your life. But I knew that I didn't want to be like that. I want to be this guy looking back, thinking about all these things that I could have done, should have done, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Would, would you say that's a bad thing, though? Like, as you're saying you wanted to help them, do you think it's a bad thing to like the institutionalism going on in the military and try to stay within the confines of that structure? No, yeah. I, think it's, I think it's part of being disciplined. I think it's a great thing. But I, I think when you're done with it, if you can't progress beyond that, then it does become a bad thing. Because... Honestly, and you've been a civilian, you can't act the same way with civilians who've never been in the military. True. They just don't get it. True. 
and nor should they. They don't have common experiences. They don't have common bonds. It's No, it's definitely not bad, but I just knew I didn't want to be that. So the point I was trying to get to is I think I've done somewhere between five and six deployments, mm. you know. But I, when, I, when I finished that chapter of my life, Oops. I turned the page and I started trying to figure out how to write a new one. That's how, that's how I approached it. Okay. That's awesome. Um, you never dwelled on it. You know, you're not one of those older gentlemen that come on and say, let me tell you about my stories. Oh, I'm not going to say it. that. That'd make me a liar. <laughs> I can tell a couple of sea stories still. But, you know, for example, when I, like I, when, when I retired, I took a year off and then I got a job uh, working in uh, Naples, Italy as a contractor okay. at the hospital. And for like a year and a half, mm -hmm. nobody knew I was retired chief because I didn't tell anybody. I didn't want that to be the merit system on which I was judged. Yes. I wanted to begin anew and establish myself anew in this new chapter I was starting to write. You just gave me chills. I have to cut you off real quick because, you know, something about that, right? And I, I, I kind of always refer to humility. And that was a very humble thing for you, you know, because I'm sure there are a lot of things in that hospital that you could have easily said, hey, young man or young woman, you know, I did this for 21 years and da, 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 da. And they're like, oh, sorry, I didn't know that. And they changed their whole demeanor towards you. Right. However, it takes a lot of strength and vulnerability, strength and vulnerability for you to say, you know what? I won't let them know I'll earn it every single day and have that paradigm shift, you know, and just keep getting after it. A lot of people do not do that. A lot of people say, oh, you've done all this stuff. So based off of what you've done, I, and I'm not saying resumes are not good. They're very good. They give you kind of a sense of what the person has done. However, too many people right now feel like, okay, what I did before should carry me today and not earn it today. So I feel like it's important for us to keep earning it. And when you just told me that right there, how many people will go within the confines of still the military where it will give you an advantage? We talked about privilege. That's a privilege right there that you had that you could have used to say, I served 21 years. I was a chief, chief hospital corpsman, but you didn't use it. You earned it every day. So How many people would do that? Uh, Not a lot. In my experience, very few. And why is that? Why I'm bringing that up is like, why is that as a society now that we're so quick to tell people what we've done instead of, hey, this is what I can do. What, what did uh, JFK say? Ask not, ask not what your country could do for you. Ask what you, what can, you do can do for, for your, your country. country. I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that. I have some theories on it. Uh, I, you know, I... Man, I love that you told that. That's awesome. I, I think that... I think the, the, a lot of Western society is based on building a facade about who you are instead of... So you use the word vulnerability, and you turned me on to one of your friend's podcasts. Right. And we're going to jump right into this. Cause That's I called the, the Evolution Podcast. The Evolution Podcast by Jay, what's his last Jesse. Jesse's his first name, and I'll, I'll pull up the last name because we met in a leadership conference. So I'll pull it up right quick. But you, you go ahead. But I listened to you talk, and what you did is you... Bayless. I just remembered it. Yeah, Jesse Bayless. Bayless. And, Jesse and Bayless. Anyway, you were talking on there, and you guys went down a path 
where you opened up and you shared in a in a in a medium that's very public mm -hmm. and that essentially anybody in the world can access some very personal things about your life right which by its very nature makes you vulnerable and and I think that what drives so so I mean I would Maybe you weren't scared when you were doing that, but I think so. No, I, I was. It's, it's got to be a scary experience because you don't know, because you know immediately somebody's going to judge you. Right. And, uh, you know, being an officer and people say, oh, you can't do certain things. I just, I just got to the point where I, I don't, I don't care what people think anymore. And I'm not disrespecting anyone, but I'm just so confident in my own skin that if I could touch somebody else by just being vulnerable and telling my truth, like I don't have it all together. You know, if that makes any sense. And, and you, you're bringing this out of me again. See what you're doing? You're doing that mind trick, that Jedi trick. No, I'm not doing anything. I, I'm going to stop. Go ahead. Because I was going to roll into what, go what I wanted to talk yeah, about go ahead. in terms go ahead. of vulnerability. I'll stop before you just... So I think, I think why people build this facade mm -hmm. is because they're scared. They're scared. Maybe some of them are even terrified to be vulnerable. And I, and I think... And I, and that look, was me. I, I, can't, I can't speak from a, a perspective of... of any other thing than what I am, which is a man. I can't tell women how to do this, but I don't think that their experiences are essentially uh, different at their fundamental core than ours are. Mm -hmm. Are They have different roles and responsibilities in society, just as we do. But I think people are scared to open up and show who they really are and be vulnerable and share that with other people because they think that it would be a sign of failure or a sign of weakness. And and to me, to open up and to share um, some of who you are, I mean, I think like essentially, look, you have all these men support groups and men get together and look, we should be doing that shit every day mm. with each other. Just mm. like I met you. All we right. just started talking to each other. Right. I ain't got nothing to be scared. I'm not comparing myself to you. Right. I'm trying to figure out, this guy seems like he's got his shit in one sock. What's he doing that I might be able to incorporate into my life mm. and make it work for me? Maybe there's nothing, but guess what? Maybe there's one thing, and that one thing could be the turning point in one little project that I have in my life. But if I don't open myself up and make myself vulnerable mm -hmm. and run towards that thing that scares me, which is maybe this guy will be a dick. Mm -hmm. Maybe this guy will be an asshole. Right. Then I'm going to fail for sure. Mm. You know, if I run towards that, at least I have an opportunity to succeed. And, and that's enough for me to function. And I think most people don't get that. I think most people want, and I think... The military, and, and don't get me wrong, and I don't want to make anybody think that I don't appreciate the military, but a lot of that's built into the organizational culture of the military. I mean, look. What specifically? Well, look, for example, we talk about the facade of people. Mm -hmm. We put on our, you know, uh, working uniforms with ribbons and whatever. Mm -hmm. People, if you got... Six racks of ribbons, six rows of ribbons. Like, oh man, that guy been around. He does it. He, he done I, some. I, I, shit. Love, I love the way you're going right now. I'm he, not going to say. Go ahead. He done some shit. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. So, so what? So, one of my one of my coworkers once upon a time brought up the concept of the mafia, and you talked about this, the mafia method of management. Yes. You know what you're worth in the mafia? What? 
the thickness of your last envelope. Mm. I don't give a shit what you did for me last year. You got to earn. You got to earn every day. Every day. Every day. And here's the reality of it for me. I don't know what anybody else's reality is, but there's only one person that can hold Mike responsible for earning what he thinks he should have in life every day. And that's it's Mike. Mike. Period. <laughs> I love it. I freaking love it. And what I was going to talk about was um, along those lines in the military where you meet somebody before they start asking you about your story, they say, oh, how many years in do you have? Or and it's kind of like they're already sizing you up to trying to figure out what you, they think, you know, you know, and I just feel like that system is flawed. You could have someone that's been in a hospital for 20 years and you run into somebody that's been. Um, an operator, or EOD man, or whatever, or like the hospital corpsman, a SARC, special amphibious reconnaissance corpsman, for eight years or seven years. They have less time, but they've, they've deployed in so many different places and have so many different experiences. However, that person that has the 20 years that's just been a physician and hasn't gone out of the ER, you may start looking down on that person with seven years. But then my, this is my argument. Why don't we start from a point where you treat everybody with respect? And this is what I try to do every day. My ethos is daily self-evaluation for a better tomorrow. So I try to evaluate myself every single day. And how I do it is my relationships with people. Even though someone is of less rank than me, it's important for myself, for me to remind myself that person is not lesser than me. That person is an individual smart, may even be smarter than me. So the very basic thing I could do is treat that person with respect. With respect and treat, my dad always told me this. As you know, my dad is my idol. You know, I love that man to death. And he always says, treat everybody you meet throughout the course of the day, like meeting them that was the best thing that happened to you that day. So that, that way you're listening to that person and you're listening to what exactly makes that person tick. Then you're engaging with that person. And actually, the reason why you're doing that is not to help the person. It's a selfish thing. My dad told me it's selfish. It makes you, so, makes you better because you can't get better if you talk all the time. My dad said that all the time. Like, you don't, you don't get better. And it gives you an opportunity to help somebody else because when you help people around you, you get better. And, and it's the weirdest concept that I've applied it to my life because my dad you always say- You get better. Society gets- Yeah. Excuse me. Society gets, gets better. better. It's, a, it's, a, it's a series- Pay it forward. It, not, I'm going to change the name of the book. We should call it A Series of Fortunate Events. Mm. If you're brave. you got to be brave to do that. And I, I like what you, you brought your dad into it. And one of the most valuable things that my father taught me was also about respect. Right. And the phrase that he taught me was, if you want to be respected, you got to respect people. Mm. You know, you wanna, if you want to be, be respected, respected, you have, have to, to respect, respect people. people. Got it. So I've, I've done some business things and whatnot since I've been out of the Navy. Mm -hmm. and, and there's been a couple opportunities that I've passed on because I went to have meals with the people that I was supposed to do business with. Mm -hmm. And they treated the waiters like shit. Wow. I don't want to do business with you because that's being who you really are. Yeah, being condescending. That's who you really are. I, you're not okay. You're not somebody that I want to be associated with. That's not the way. And, and I might have lost some money. Right. But I would rather hold true to my principles. And, and I think another part of respect is, you know, uh, your, your daily self-evaluation. Self mm -hmm. 
that comes from a place of trying to respect who you are. You know, one of the things that I always tell myself, I need to make sure that when I wake up in the morning, who's the first person you see in the morning? I see myself. Exactly. You know, the first person I see in the morning has to like me. And that's me when I look in the mirror. And if I don't like me, then I've gone astray. (laughs) Mike, that's powerful. You know? The first person I look at in the day has to like me. That's right. I have to like who I am. And it's okay if I don't like myself a little bit or I have to tweak this area. But, you know, then I would like, you just gave me something I'm going to use. So, do I not like this part of my life? Well, that's daily self-evaluation. Yeah. No, I don't. Can I fix that? Yeah. Absolutely. That, that's my ethos. And that's how I live Absolutely. every single day. But you got to like who you are. You got If you don't respect who you are, the way you act in this right. world, how can you respect anybody else? Well, you see, that's a very key thing. And, and I'll share it. Like, I've come from a point where I used to doubt myself. And I didn't know where I fit in in society. Because I come from a very dominant family, I, I'll say. And I'm the youngest. You know, so it's and my immediate older brother is six years older than me. So I've always dealt with the challenges of, man, am I kind of like an, an only child in a family? So I've had to overcome those things with self-doubt. And the only way I've gotten better is by being vulnerable like we talked about. And I had to start practicing more self-care and appreciating myself and starting to understand what makes me tick. You know, like, so I actually... At, at some point, I think it's happened about five years ago, six years ago, I started evaluating myself instead of focusing on other people. How am I responding to other people? What am I doing? What if I'm wrong? And that's something I never asked myself. In a situation where I think like someone is mistreating me or being condescending, what if I'm the one that's making the mistake because I'm the common denominator? If you go everywhere and that place smells like shit, who's the poop in the room? So, 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 but my my thing for saying that is we should always be careful in judging others, but we should focus on making ourselves better and making ourselves better is by understanding to your point, understanding who you are. Because a lot of people walk around not knowing who they really are because they're scared of who they think they are. And they don't want to face that, they may that not, issue. They may not like, <laughs> like themselves. Ex- exactly. They may not like themselves. But, you know, I don't know, I don't know the answer for those folks. And, and, and that's a perfect segue to the next question I want to ask, which is, let's go into jiu-jitsu. I want to talk about what exactly, let's start from the very fundamental level. What is jiu-jitsu? So jiu-jitsu is a uh, grappling martial art. Uh, you know, there's a lot of debate on where it came from, but I think that the best guess is that they can trace it back to um, India. Okay, the, the, I thought it was Japan. Oh, I'm so well, terrible. but but no, well, but you know, remember the Indian sub- subcontinent is quite dominant right. in Asia. Right, it, it really is. Mm-hmm. Um, and and people don't realize that in India, in that region, there's quite a few martial arts. You know, be it knife or sword fighting or physical combat, whatever. But then, yes, it went to Japan, and it's a way to train physically. It it comes from judo at some point. And there's a part of judo, which is the floor fighting, called nuasa. And essentially what Brazilian jiu-jitsu is, is there was a guy by the name of Count Conde who was a... uh, 
there was a lot of Japanese immigrants to South America somewhere in the late 19th, early 20th century. The Gracie family, who they were actually Scottish. Okay. The grandfather was Scott, or the great grandfather at this point was Scottish. Don't quote me on this because I don't know the history verbatim. But uh, this guy was there and he did like uh, grappling shows and he did um, some training with the Gracie kids. Mm -hmm. And that's how you got Helio and Carlos Gracie and all these guys and the Gracie family. That's basically the floor fighting portion of judo um which for a long time the international judo federation when you watch the olympics or you watch the world championships in judo they had taken all that part away from it now because of jujitsu guess what they brought back and what they were focused on was the throws the projections you know the Mm -hmm. all the different things that are so amazing in judo when they pull them off um so it's based on like uh essentially joint locks and choke what does that, that, that mean, joint lock? Oh, I'm going to take your arm and I'm going to bend it the way it's not supposed to bend. Or I'm going to take your heel mm-hmm. and I'm going to twist the top of your foot to the right as I bring your heel to the left. And I'm going to torque your entire leg and essentially your, either your leg is going to break or you, all the tendons around your knee are going to explode. Let me ask you something. Does jiu-jitsu teach you about being calm and under stressful situations? Because if you overreact when you're in a bad position, awkward position, you're defensive... I could see things going worse. Not even, uh, not only does it teach you that, it requires you to, in, in order to progress, you have to learn how to do that. So, you know, uh, one of the other things that I do to complement my jujitsu is yoga. And everybody, in, the big theme of the day is mindfulness. Mindfulness. And, and kind of to a degree, what you and I are talking about, about how we've developed as human beings, is mm-hmm. mindfulness. We're thinking about how we act, what we do on a daily basis, right? Right. So, you know, everybody who does yoga thinks the only way to achieve mindfulness is through yoga. Well, I just find out it to be a crock of shit. Mm -hmm. Because if you and I are grappling and you're trying to choke me, you're trying to break my arm, and I'm not mindful of what the hell is going on around me and the proximity of your body to my body and how my position relates to your position, what you're trying to achieve, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not going to be able to prevent or fight back. So the answer to your question is, it's a requirement. And, you know, what a lot of people say, you know, jujitsu is high-level problem-solving under extreme stress. Hmm. You know? Optimum self-awareness. You have to control your breathing. And, you know, you're going on for 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe a fight is 10 minutes. You, ha- you can't run in there. You can't, you can't run in there full blast because you're going to, you know, there's certain physiological reactions that your body has. You build up too, lac- too much lactic acid, yeah, right. you're going to be weak. I mean, a lot of times when I go to practice, I try to go and I try to have like a, try to do like a five, five and a half mile run or I do these. Beforehand these, or? Sometime during the day. I try to work out twice a day. Okay. I try to make one of those workouts a jujitsu workout about four or five times a week. My body... That's about the most my body can take of jujitsu in a week is about four or five days. Jujitsu workout. What does that even mean? A training. So you're going to go train. You know, when I teach a class, it's an hour and a half. We do like. So you need somebody else. You can't do this by yourself. No, I I have drills I can do on my own. But the structure of my classes is I would do like 20, 30 minutes warm up. Uh So you maybe do a little jogging, some jumping jacks. You know, we do some movement drills, you know, movements that, um, 
what I always tell my students is, you know, we're primates. Essentially, we're primates. We're like two chromosomes away from chimpanzees. Mm-hmm. The only thing that differentiates us from other primates is that we can reason and we can speak. But the way they move, oh, and we don't have opposing thumbs on our feet. God, I would like to have one of those. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to have an opposing thumb on my foot so I can grab a hold of people with right. it. You know? Right. But that's really essentially the only thing that differentiates us. You know, those two How factors. long have you been doing this? Did you just I started in, uh, well, when I was 44, 43, late 43, 44 years old. So, so I, I thought there's like, so there's no age limit. It just, it doesn't matter when you get into jujitsu. Is there an age limit on anything in life? Is it ever too late? Well, physical limitations can. It depends. I mean, I was in a little bit, maybe I was a little bit more over. I th- still think I could lose some weight, but maybe I was a little bit overweight at that point. But I had wrestled when I was in high school, and I had boxed a little bit. So that probably helped you. So, so someone is a, a novice, complete novice, a novice can't really come in at No, no. So, you know, you, you getting back to your question, yeah, you have to focus on what's going on. You have to learn how to control your emotions. You know, matter of fact, when, when my, my professor, I mean, I'm capable of promoting people now but one of the things I, I always have a conversation with him prior to doing so you know um one of the questions he's always asked me well, how do they react under pressure mm-hmm. you know because it's a concern for him it's a concern because we we believe in the meritocracy of jujitsu. one of the things there's a lot of guys that were prior military that get into jujitsu, mm-hmm. and i'm going to kind of digress to the last thing we discussed and i think the reason they digress is because in the military we're told it's a meritocracy if you're a little bit aware we all know it's not right but in jujitsu if your professor's doing things right when you see a guy walk in with a blue belt or a purple belt or a brown belt or black belt you know you know and and if if what what are the belt what's the hierarchy that's it right there. Blue, you go white. So you start off, okay, so it's kind of like Kung Fu. White, blue, purple, brown, black. Kind of like karate. And, and then, black has different grades? Right. And you can progress through black to, I think black has 10 grades. Oh, yeah. So you can be, I think when you get to the seventh degree black belt, you become a coral belt. So Man, you do not want to wrestle with someone like that. <laughs> those, yeah. those guys at that point are just... They will beat your ass if you're wrong, but they're they're con, they're consult. It's a, they know so much. It's right. a consult. It's a consultant. The amount type. of focus. Yeah. Well, you got to think, and you get the black belt. Like my my professor is a third degree black belt. Mm. So once you get your black belt, first degree is three years, second degree is three years, third degree is three years. When are so you off of black belt? I don't know. I don't. At this point, I don't even care. And 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 at. at I mean, I care, but I want to get my black belt, but here's the conundrum of getting a black belt in jiu-jitsu. I'll have spent probably 10 years doing jiu-jitsu, and when I get my black belt, that's when it begins. Those 10 years don't mean anything. Now I have to begin all over again and learn. The point I was getting to with my professor, he's got nine years as a black belt. I've been practicing jiu-jitsu for eight years. Right now, when you get to fourth degree, you have to wait five years. Fifth degree, five more years. Sixth degree, five more what's years. The, what, what's the importance of the years you're waiting? Um, 
it's just a standard that you know you're trying to make sure that worldwide the international brazilian jiu-jitsu federation is trying to ensure that people have a standard to follow there's exceptions to every rule and the people who are exceptions you know almost immediately just like if you meet an exceptional human being in your life they don't need to tell you you know just by the way they conduct themselves you know all of us do um so there's exceptions, but they're just trying to maintain a standard. You know, gotcha, trying gotcha. to, you know, trying to make sure people don't um, sell the art short. Short, right? You know. So. So let me ask you this then: What are the advantages of jiu-jitsu? Would you say the top advantages of jiu-jitsu? I think it just improves you as a human being overall because when you come in there on day one and you get beat up, uh, we already touched on humility, mm-hmm. one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to continue or you're going to quit. Right. And, I, and I've gotten to the point where I pretty much can tell when people show up whether they're going to continue or quit. I can also tell, like, uh, the, the biggest... The biggest level at which we use lose people in jujitsu is at blue belt. We lose people at blue belt because they're like, "Oh, I achieved blue belt. I'm done." Because then it gets really hard. And and I can tell you from my own experience, at every level, when I got my blue belt, man, everybody comes at you hard. Mm-hmm. You gotta be. You got it. So going back to that mental focus piece, mm-hmm. you gotta refocus. It pushes you to to do some of the things that you and I are discussing in this medium right now. You've got to self-evaluate. You've got to say to yourself, am I up to this? For me, there's only one answer. And it's a resounding, hell yeah, I'm up to this. But that doesn't mean I don't struggle with it. That doesn't mean I'm not vulnerable. It doesn't mean I'm not scared. It doesn't mean any of those things. How do you overcome your fear? I just try to run towards it. Uh, so you meet it, you lean in. I lean into it. I lean into it. I don't know. You, I'm a huge boxing fan. Do you know who Teddy Atlas is? Yes. You ever see the speech that he gave to... Uh, oh, you were telling me about this. He gave a speech to... Uh, God, what's his name? His name will come to me, but one of his fighters. Mm-hmm. He was fighting Brandon Rios, right? He's the guy that meet, beat Manny Pacquiao. And the guy, his father trained him. His father's a hell of a boxing trainer, but he wanted to change the way he fought. And uh, he went to Teddy, and Teddy trained him. And he was beating the shit out of Brandon Rios in this fight. And Teddy gets him in the corner in like the eighth round. He says, listen to me. You got to focus. You're swaying for me a little bit. He's winning every round. Mm. And he says, he says, okay, coach. No, you're not listening to me. You got to focus. He goes, we're firemen. Firemen don't run away from the fire. We run into it. Mm -hmm. We control the flames. We dominate the indomitable. And that next round, he knocked the guy out. Sure. You know? So that's kind of... Teddy Atlas is a person that I admire. I don't want to be Teddy Atlas. But by God, I'm going to try to adopt some of the things that he he speaks about. I mean... um, and I, I just think that that's, um, he's driven. He's driven. Yeah, he always has been. And he, you know, he, people don't understand. He did what he does 
for many, many, many years living in poverty. It wasn't overnight. He just didn't all of a sudden become a rich boxing trainer and a commentator for HBO. You know? I don't ever understand what builds that mindset because I'm interested to see what your opinion is on that. But before I forget, I have to ask you this question because you have a rich story and phenomenal story. Well, I want to know what's the most uncomfortable thing you've ever done and how did you overcome it? The fighter was Timmy Bradley. Timmy Bradley? Timmy okay. Bradley. Yeah. Gotcha. Oh, God. Most uncomfortable thing I've ever done. It's a tough one because I try to make myself uncomfortable every day in some way, shape, or form because I believe in the strength of a human being is built through adversity, not through comfort. I think there was one point when I was in the Navy and I was pretty full of myself and I probably wasn't so humble. I would so go so far as to say I was full of shit. Mm-hmm. And I had gotten my first master's degree and I tried to get out of the Navy. And my wife is, uh, so we're in Spain right now. I don't know if people, if they know that on the podcast, mm-hmm. but my right. wife is Spanish. And I went, got this job that looked really, really great. Had a big number attached to it. Oh, you did get out? I did, uh, almost. Okay. Almost. I was on terminal leave, and I got to this job, and it had a huge number attached to it. And it was not what I was sold. But that's not the important piece of the story. The important piece of the story is that I had uh, thought the best way to take care of my family and I don't know where the hell I got this from because that's not the way I was raised in the Midwest. Was to leave my wife here, make sure I support her financially, get my shit together in the States, and bring her over. And I got there, and by God, what a disaster, man. I thought I was going to lose my family, dude. Well, I, I let's, let's unpack this. So, what happened? Well, like I said, the job had a great number attached to it, but like zero support. Just, you know, and I had come from this military structure where everything essentially is done for you. Mm -hmm. That's really easy. There's an SOP for everything. Oh, for those that don't know what SOP, that's standard standard operating procedure. Not only that, there's a supporting cast. Right. You get out and you move away from the military. Even when I went to Italy to work, I literally put all my stuff in my car that I was going to take to Italy with me, drove to Barcelona, <laughs> got on a ferry that got out in Rome, and then drove down to Naples, Italy. There was nobody waiting for me. There was nobody there to help me. There was no welcoming party. There was no sponsor like in the military. None of that shit. Mm-hmm. Well, when I, when I made that move to go to the States, I thought I was ready, and I was scared of it. But it was so difficult because I, I really thought I had endangered the well-being of my family. Because at the end yeah. of the day, I don't give two shits She's about my yeah. well-being. I, I can am. survive. Yeah. That's how I am. You know, my, my ethos is, a, is a, and it, you know, I'm going I'm to get hit for a couple things that I've said on this podcast by the feminists. But I don't care because it's who I am. I don't have to lie about who I am to make you comfortable. Sure. But my ethos as a man is, and and look, my wife is a super independent woman. Mm -hmm. She says it all the time. I'm not with you because I need to be with you. I'm with you because I want to be with you. And I'm the same way with her. You know, and because of that, I think we have a great relationship. 
because it's a it's a want thing versus a need thing. Mm-hmm. She's financially independent. She doesn't need me to live, you know. Um. So the the fear of doing damage to my kids, you know, it's not even about my wife at some point because, like I said, she's independent. But damaging my children, I don't think that there's a worse thing that a man can do than whether intentionally or unintentionally to damage his children. You know, it's a tough one. And, and I think that probably along the path my kids are older now, I've probably done some things that have helped them and I've probably done some things that damaged them. But I don't know, you know, I have to kind of develop that idea because at some point you don't even, you don't know. And one of the things that I know about having kids is my, my son is 21 and I still don't know shit about being a father. And that comes from the desire to always be better. But that's to the book you recommended to me, though. At least you tried your best. Yeah, I try my best. Everybody tries my best, tries their best. I, I was speaking to somebody the other day, and my father came up, and it was in relationship to my relationship with my son. And I said, look, when I was his age, perhaps... I thought that my father could do more. And I think this is significant. I said, but now that I've progressed to the age that I'm at, and, and as, you know, I don't want my maturation process or my development process to ever end till the day when this vessel that I am disappears. I don't want that to stop. But what I recognize now about my father, I mean, like I said, he's from the Midwest. He's very stoic, mm-hmm. keeps his mouth shut, does, keeps his nose to the grindstone, doesn't complain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In the, in the framework within which he was brought up, that was his absolute best. When you're 20-some years old, you don't know shit about that. You think you do because, you know, in your 20s, my synopsis of life is in your 20s. Mm-hmm. You know everything. Everybody else is an idiot. You don't give a shit about what they got to say. Yeah. Get away from me. Yeah. When you hit your 30s, you're like, oh, shit. Uh... Maybe half these people know something about something that they're trying to tell me. Maybe I ought to listen to a few of them and try to take some stuff in, right? Right. Then you get to your 40s and you're like, God damn, man, I don't know nothing. I listen to everybody and I try to try to absorb as much. And that process for me, since I'm now in my 50s, has just continued. Right. But, but I, think, I think just maybe putting that idea out there, especially for like, I, I go with my jujitsu guys who are in their 20s their 30s and man some of them are not even in their 20s yet because they're in the military right you know how much i get out of them they educate me on a daily basis and i don't just let them educate me i make sure i ask them questions i make sure i recognize their contributions to me as a human being Mm -hmm. you know so it's a it's a synergistic relationship You know, yeah. I think we make a mistake. We say, I'm, you know, I'm 50 years old. Ain't shit. You can tell me yeah, I've been right. through everything. And right. That's just not so, is it? Yeah, that's, that's the same concept of years in service. I was just telling you, it's like people lose that humility because of, yeah, yeah, they've done something. They've earned something. But at the same time, don't ever constrict yourself. You still get better each and every day. And, and back to your your comment, though. And well, before I get into the comment, you hadn't finished the piece of going out to that job and endangering your family how, how did you overcome that what, what what actions did you take came back in the navy man. i was still on terminal leave i went back to to norfolk and i re-enlisted and uh 
tried to rebuild what I had kind of halfway destroyed. What did that company say to you? Don't you look at it as you committed to them that you... Well, they made no commitment to me. I, I, I was supposed to do uh, some computer stuff. They're mm -hmm. like, well, we don't have a computer for you. You have to provide your own machine. Say what? Yeah. Well, where's my desk? We, we don't have one of those either. Oh, wow. So they, they sold you a fake story or like a false pretty, story. Pretty much. Pretty much. That sucks. Pretty that's, much. That's not okay. So, so, yeah, did I have a commitment to them? Right. Yeah, but isn't there some, isn't, isn't this, uh, this reciprocal idea important too with an employer? Yeah, it is. You know? trust, so, goes, trust goes both ways. <laughs> and look, because I try to be humble every day, I'm going to tell you maybe I wasn't 100% right. But I did what I felt in my heart was right at that moment. You know, you leaned in again. Yeah, I went back at but you, it. But you, but you have to. That's that dichotomy. You have to understand that, like, you have to control it. Because sometimes, and I'm the same way. Yeah, I'm a type A, and I'm always trying to lean in. But I have to control myself sometimes. And the passion, you know this. We talk about this all yeah, the time. Yeah, we talk about it all the time. Yeah. So, passion is wonderful. Right. But you got to temper it. You got to temper it. You got to temper it. Because everybody doesn't share your passion. Right. Everybody doesn't share your ideas. Yeah. Everybody doesn't want to do things the way you do. And what you don't want to do is you don't want to lose the people that you might gain by just tempering that passion a little bit. Right. You're, you're taking an opportunity away from yourself. But that that's... Um, that's a hard deal, isn't it? That's the hard deal. And with life, though, you got to learn how to live with regrets. Some will come and some will go. And the way I look at it is that same passion is going to cost me relationships and opportunity. That same passion is going to afford me a lot of opportunities as well. But along the way, I need to temp temper it and catch those things that may lead me astray and try my best. Like you always said. Try your best, man. But, but the, before I, I close out this episode, because this is phenomenal stuff, we may have to do this episode <laughs> Once a month or every two months and just talk about different topics. Thank you so much for coming on again. But um, something you said earlier about your relationship with your kids and you don't want to make a mistake that can affect them. And that resonated with me because, as you know, I got a divorce, you know, before. Yep. And, and it always, in the back of my mind, like decisions, you know, and culture, you know, and Nigerian culture is just divorce is not a big thing, you know. But here in the States, I feel like when things get hard, people don't lean in. People tend to run. And I'm not blaming anyone but myself. Maybe I should have fought more for my ex and all that stuff. However, if it, wasn't, if, it was, if it was a toxic relationship, it's better that we severed ties. But my main point is to the kids. Though. And it's something that as a father... It always weighs heavily on me. It keeps me up at night. When I'm running that mile and I'm looking at my watch and I'm at a 7.32 pace, I'm like, and I'm getting tired, lungs are burning. I'm like, I just have to push, push, drive, drive. And it's not because of me. Because I'm thinking about my son is a year and a half. Man, and he's so happy, right? Hasn't been tainted by the world at all. And it's, the onus is on me to protect him. My wife is very happy. You know, I think she's happy. Babe, I hope you're happy if you're listening to this. <laughs> but it's, she has, she has if, she, if she's not, she's got to tell you. Right, right. If she doesn't tell you, well, you, ain't nothing, you can't right. read her mind. It's like my wife likes to tell me that I have to read her mind. I'm like, hey, right. you're gonna, it ain't going to happen. It ain't going right? to happen. I, I'm yeah. not that good. So, so, so my point is, 
she has a roof over her head and I love that role of providing for my family and my daughters as well but at the same time I understand the thin line that is my drive and my motivation like I I get and you know this and I'll, I'll repeat it again because some people listen to this may have not have heard this I get my motivation from a man that was born in Ujari owned by not local government his dad died when he was young he sold tomatoes on his head fed his mom raised his siblings raised his brother to become a cardiologist his brother cardiologist now has a son that went to harvard and got a medical degree his daughter emory back to my dad his other sister nurse practitioner his own kids i'm the youngest of five men the first economist second lawyer the third is a computer scientist, the fourth the metallurgist. He has a PhD in mechanical no, master's degree in mechanical engineering, PhD in metallurgy. Then me, um, an industrial hygiene officer. I say all that because of the motivation of that one man. He fought in the Biafran War from 67 to 70, Igbo man. So he fought the Nigerian um, nation. The nation I, I, I represent so hard, that nation tried to kill my people. Green Eagles, baby. Right. Oh, oh, oh you, I like what you did there. You hit me with a side. I did not know you knew that. Well, so the, the Green Eagles, Super Eagles, I represent that country, but those, that same country tried to kill the dreams of my dad. And after we lost that war, they gave everybody 20 pounds, I believe, and cleared out their accounts. They're very rich Yoruba people and Hausa people today because they took the money from Igbos. I understand all that context. But that man did not let any of those excuses stop him. He was still motivated and driven to achieve. Became the director of the airport authorities in the whole of Nigeria as an Igbo man. That's rare. So now I get that motivation from there, but I have to, as you said, tamper it, you know, and very deliberate with my actions. And I see the same thing in a man like you use jujitsu for your discipline, your focus, your drive, your ambition. You already did 21 years. I've met a lot of people that have done 20 years. I feel like they've achieved. They did something in life. Right? I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not dismissing anyone that has done 20 years and retired. However, it's like, what's, what have you done lately? You know, and you have that hunger to be better each and every day. Mafia management. How fat is your last envelope? And it's how fat, how, how are you paying you? Right. I mean, like you were describing your father. Mm -hmm. What choice did he have? When 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 we come down to brass tacks, what choice did he really have but to do what he did? I think we're confused in the 21st century mm -hmm. by too many choices. Get back to simplicity. You got yourself into every single situation you find yourself into. Be responsible for it. Nothing is that complicated. Get off your fucking smartphone. Get off of social media. Make connections with people. I mean, I, I love what we're doing here because sending people messages on a smartphone, that's not communication. Right. Sitting across from another human being and having a conversation, seeing the expressions on their face, the way their eyes look at you, the way they use their body language to express themselves, that's right. real communication. You know, and, and, you know, right now in this day, we're still on quarantine, some level of quarantine in Spain. And 
I'm not scared of a damn disease. I'm scared of what we're losing in relationship to each other and in terms of humanity and how we treat each other. Because what is this going to mean? It's like you hear the horror stories of uh, uh, Asian American, and I hate to use it because you know what? If they're born in America, they ain't not Asian. They're American, just like me. Yeah. Sure. You know, just like you're a naturalized citizen. Right. You're an American. Right. Period. You're not, you know, anything else. And these horror stories of people saying shit to other human beings and treating them in a way that. They wouldn't, they, it's despicable. They I saw a video. They wouldn't want to be treated like that. I, and, and, you know, I love that comment. Just make they wouldn't want to be treated they like that. Want to be treated I saw like a video that. in New York, right? I kid you not. Asian American, a woman, being attacked by a black man for something to do with coronavirus. And I'm looking at this video. I'm saying, if anybody should understand what. Being disenfranchised is, man. Yeah, guess who they brought to the United States to do essentially very badly paid, essentially slave labor? Building the railroads and building San Francisco and California. And, you know, so, so, you know, don't, because at the end of the day, aren't we more alike than different, regardless of the way we look? If you really want to be technical about it, all of us, genetic research tells us that all of us come from West Africa. Science don't lie. And because of the diaspora, we disperse throughout this world. And part of evolution tells us that our the skin tone changed, etc. But we're all the same, man. You got the same. You came, you, you, you told me your story. You came to America with a dream. And you ain't done yet. Oh, no. But you're on the road. Yeah, I'm done. Isn't that what yet, it's... Yeah. Isn't that what it... Oh, you've done quite a bit, but don't sell yourself short. Be humble. I get it. <laughs> I get it, man. I get it, brother. <laughs> but but isn't, isn't that the American dream? Yes, sir. Isn't that the American dream? It's not to be, you know, fat and lazy and conformist. And go with the herd. It's to stand up for who you want to become, not who you are. Who you want to become, the opportunity to become anything that you can imagine and are capable of becoming. Because you can't do anything you want in life. No, you have capabilities and capacities. Hey, I hear that all the time. I tell my kids they could be whatever they want to be. Lies. If you suck at math, you're not going to work for yeah. NASA. Yeah. Period. If you're if you're a naturalized citizen of America, you can't be the can't president. Can't be the president of the United States. Certain things that but people just do not listen to themselves sometimes and just oh, but I want I don't want to kill any dreams. Manage expectations, right? Well, you know, uh, Hugo, yeah. they're not being thoughtful. They're not being thoughtful. So one of the things I always try to be is thoughtful. Right. Tell me what you want to tell. Let me reflect on it a little bit. Let me think about it. You know, mm-hmm. um, you, you you have to think about certain things. You have to think about the big picture and the context. And when, when the, your your biggest thing, and I love it. Don't get me wrong. Passion, passion's great. The problem with passion sometimes, if you if you're not if you don't temper it with thoughtfulness, you become irrational mm. and you become unreasonable, and you say and do things that may not be based on a complete thought process. Right. 
And I think you can recognize that's a danger. Don't yeah. get rid of your passion, but understand. Well, it's, it's not going nowhere. But understand that yeah. if you uh, if you apply a couple other concepts and combine them, if you do plus and divide and minus and, and add some things to it and you use it the right way, then when you do open your mouth, more people are going to listen to you. Because I already think a lot of people listen to you. But that, that's, that's, that's where the ethos comes. Yeah. Self-evaluating because yeah. I'm trying to find the mistakes. It's kind of like something as easy as an e- email. I love fi- finding, uh, finding typos. I love typos. Because typos show me that I'm human. And I, and I found a mistake and I could correct it. I just made myself better. Do you have a lot of typos when you write emails? No. I do, and it's because my are <laughs> digressing, but it's, <laughs> it's because my mind moves. I I know what I want to write. Right. My damn fingers don't move fast enough. I, so I, I, I use that as an example, just because <laughs> of something where people can see it and identify a mistake that they made after they sent that email. Yeah. And there's this rush when you send yeah. it to superiors, and you're like, oh man, I should have caught that. Well, well, you know, so we're kind of laughing here. I've injected some humor into this thing. I think that's the other piece of the of life and when you do fail laugh about it it's okay it's fun yeah. so why not make light of yourself yeah. it's okay yeah, i'll tell my wife the other day it's like when people try to demean some people sometimes they'll say certain things like if someone has a gap in their teeth right and they say oh i can fix that gap right and you respond with it oh really i didn't know you could make that gap bigger yeah like, oh you know what? You're 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 comfortable in your own skin. yourself self aware. Michael Strahan, remember? You know. Oh Michael, yeah, yeah, yeah. They want to fix his teeth because now he's on TV. He's what the hell? I want to fix my gap in my teeth for? That's who I am. Yeah. I love who I am. Yeah. Look at all the things I've done in my life. You, you know, know what? That helped me. It helped me with public speaking. Before I used to be like fidgety or whatever. But when I enlisted, I enlisted Intel specialist, and it went through the process of public speaking with us. And once they taught us several concepts, and I was like, you know what? Everybody has problems in here. Everybody has their own issue. What if I just do my job? I just brief. Yeah. Just focus on my brief. Don't fo- focus on how people will take it, right? Focus on doing my best brief every single time. If I just do that, then any mistake that comes. Well, what's key is what you just said, though. You said, I'm going to focus on doing my best brief every time I give a brief. Yeah. You're not saying. I'm going to focus on doing a better brief than Johnny or Sally. Oh, no. Oh, no. No. That's, oh, no. That's, but that's what, that's what people, one of the greatest, uh, I don't, are, are you familiar with Ayn Rand? No. So, Ayn Rand, you said? Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand. So she wrote, uh, I haven't read, uh, one of her books is called The Fountainhead. And it's about an architect. And there's a point in this uh, book that, Somebody asked him, well, what do you think of this person? Mm-hmm. His response was, I don't. And they're like, what do you mean you don't? Okay. I don't think, <laughs> think of, of that person ever. I think about what I'm doing. Yes. I don't think of that person. I think about what I'm doing. I can only control me. I can only make me better. It's a concept that a lot of people haven't mastered. And I just, again, this all just came around like five years ago. I would go further. I would say it's a concept that a lot of people don't even think about. You know? And I think also it's a concept that like, like I talked about how I got to kind of 
sit down here with you and the interaction. Right. Because I, mean, I think I saw you. You were walking in in your dress blues. Right. And I said to you, you know how damn lucky you are to get this, this set of orders? Yeah, you stopped and, me. And, and right. you were like, no, but they told me. Right? Right. I remember that conversation. Yeah. And I try to do that with everybody. I don't know you. But once again, if I don't face that fear of, oh, failing, maybe this guy doesn't want to know me. But that I, small interaction meant a lot to me, though. Because, like, everybody, I'd be like, hey, welcome, welcome. Well, I mean, and I appreciate that. But I'll tell you, you're not special. I try to do that mm-hmm. with everybody because right. that's how I'd want to be treated. Right. It goes back to, the, I guess, my ethos. I don't use that terminology. Mm-hmm. But I try to treat everybody the way I'd like to be treated. Right. So I love that's that. a, that's an ethos in a way, right? And look, you're here, you're in a new place, you're facing all those things we've been talking about. You got to be a little bit scared. You got to be a little bit hesitant. Mm-hmm. You got to have some self doubt. You got to have some doubt what's going to happen to your family. How are your kids going to adapt? How are your wife? Can I make your day just a little bit? And you smiled, man. Yeah. So you know what that told me? That's feedback. That's communication. I made that guy's day maybe 1% better, but is it 1% enough? Hey, that's like like what my dad says. Treat everybody you meet during the day like meeting them was the best thing that happened to you. You know, you're making that person better. Yeah, you're making that person better, man. So, you know, you you you've got to commit. I I can't say you because I've got to. I've committed to trying to do that on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so yeah that's just what i try to do i just try to make people feel yeah, better. that's awesome awesome stuff mike so in closing is there anything else you'd want to share with my audience just any last thoughts because i know you're well read very wise anything at all any nuggets you could share at this point well no i mean i guess the only thing i would say is once we get out of this situation in spain and, and i speaking can, to covid right yeah speaking to covid 19 and I can start to do my jujitsu classes here on base again. I would say anybody who wants to try to do jujitsu, please come over. You know, we have a Facebook page. Um, you know, and and even if you don't do jujitsu, if you're here or you want to reach out to me, reach out to me. You know, uh, I love to get to know new people. I love to uh, share ideas and thoughts and experiences with people i love to be a human a human being in what i want to become a humane world i I think we've lost track of that at some point and i think that doing things like this in some little way makes it better Mm -hmm. that's my hope that's what i have faith in i have faith in mankind do you do you know i know where this is we're closing out but do you know of any tenants that could bring us back to the right path? Well, I think we talked about it. Be vulnerable. Be vulnerable. Vulnerability. Okay. I mean, the, the podcast you shared with Bayless, that you were on, Bayless. That, the, 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 the level, and I had listened to quite a few of your podcasts, and they're yes, all really, really good. Thank you, sir. But I didn't really understand me because who I you were until you put you out there. Right. Because I've yeah. never done that on my podcast of really going that far with vulnerability. I may take your advice and go there one time, you know, just share who I am and my experiences. Yeah, it's a, it's a risk, but I think it's a calculated risk. Right. And I think it's, once again, it's taken us closer to, I think you do this because you want to try to make the world a more humane place to live in. Yes, exactly. Just and, trying to do and, my part. And, and we're just trying to do, we're just trying to do, everybody tries to figure, anybody who's 
and I don't want to use these silly terms, who's who's aware, who's self-aware on some level, mm -hmm. wants to make people around them better because they know that means, well, hey, shit, man, if everybody around me is better, I live in a better place, you know? Mm. Um, and it's based on s small, small group interaction for the most part. There's no I in team, there's an I in win. And if we all win... You benefit from Well, it. if you write team with block letters, there is an I. <laughs> That's awesome. Awesome way to end this. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the Pass Your Limit podcast. I will definitely have to bring you back and unpack a whole bunch of different things. Um, I already know when I'll ask you to come on, but I won't put that out right now on air. But uh, we could definitely unpack whole different lane of craziness and you, you probably you're smart man you already know what i'm alluding to but um we will unpack that part and we'll go more into leadership with that episode but until then thank you for coming on who we are 21 years in service and still getting after it and we'll talk again soon brother thank you very much i appreciate your time yes sir